Hi, welcome to the Anti-People Pleasing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Westwood, the Codependency Coach. Each week I answer your questions on codependency, people pleasing, and all things relationship related, submitted to me via Instagram. Follow me on the gram at Joe Westwood to submit your questions in my stories every Monday. You can also hit the link in the show notes to take you straight there. There are just three more episodes of the pod left in this season, so if you have a question for me and you'd like to get it answered before 2021 is up, please do submit it in my stories or my DMs on Monday. And a quick reminder that if you have a podcast success story, I'd love to hear from you too. Please drop me a DM on Instagram if you found one of the answers on the pod particularly helpful, whether it was your question or not. I'd love to share how the podcast has helped you in a special episode coming at the end of the year. Okay, first up today, we have this from Bridget. My partner really needs to go to therapy, but he keeps treating it like a joke. How do I get them to go to therapy so they stop unloading on me and start building a safety net for themselves without being rude or insinuating that they're broken? Hey Bridget, thanks for your question. So I'm coming straight in with a bit of tough love to answer this one. How other adults choose to run their lives is not our responsibility, as in we cannot make them change. This is common advice in recovery circles, but I'm always concerned that it gets misconstrued for a particularly unsettling brand of hyper-individualism that is rising in our culture. We can absolutely be compassionate towards people, have empathy for their situation, their fears and past experiences. We can even love people and hold a boundary on where our support stops and their personal responsibility begins. One of the markers of a codependent relationship is the unspoken agreement that I will work harder on your problems than you will. That's what's happening here. You're seeking help from me about how to get your partner to seek help. You can lead a horse, or a partner in this case, to water, but you can't make them drink. Currently, you and your partner are standing by the watering hole. You can see they're dehydrated, but the idea of taking a drink seems laughable to them. Instead, they'd rather complain to you about how thirsty they are. All the while, you expend your energy trying to tell them how helpful it would be if they would just take a damn drink. If you have led them to the water and told them how revitalizing it is, how good it would be for them, and they still won't drink, you have done your job. You have gone as far as you can go. This is where we have to hand off to personal responsibility, because if we don't, we slip into codependent control and manipulation. Your question feels like, What are the exact words that I can say that will finally convince my partner to do the thing that seems so obvious to me that they should do, not only for themselves, but for the sake of our relationship? And my question to you is, why do you continue to stay in a relationship with someone who thinks therapy is a joke and yet thinks it's acceptable to keep emotionally dumping on you, never trying to fix their own issues, but expecting you to unendingly bear the burden of them? Again, this does not mean that we can never support a partner or friend who is in need of help. We can be in recovery, have good boundaries, and still be caring and empathetic. It's much easier and a more reasonable ask to support someone when we can see that they are doing something to support themselves, or when we know the issue is time-limited. 
That way we can manage our energy and whatever logistics are required to support them because we know it's not going to be this way forever. It means we can still keep our own lives and not have to commit ourselves to caretaking another adult as well as trying to look after ourselves and any other true dependents we may have, i.e. vulnerable adults, children and animals. For example, if your partner just had surgery and they're in physical recovery, it might mean for the next six to eight weeks they're going to need some extra help getting around, making meals, etc. That's time limited. You can adjust for that. Or if your partner was suffering with mental health issues but had gotten some medication that was helping and was also in regular therapy and spreading the burden by talking to friends and family about their problems as well as you and you could see them progressing and getting better that is seeing them helping themselves. It may not be clearly time limited as in the first example, but seeing forward progress and having the burden lifted on both of you bit by bit makes it feel more manageable. But it sounds like you're not being shown any of this effort. And I don't know if it's your partner who's making you feel like suggesting therapy to them is rude, or if it's your codependency holding you back from what feels like it could be a confrontation when it's actually just compassionate honesty, or maybe it's a bit of both. But as we know, there's nothing wrong with going to therapy. Quite frankly, most of us need it at some point in our lives. Going to therapy doesn't mean you're broken in the same way going to a doctor for a physical health issue doesn't mean you're broken. I think if you've had an honest conversation and asked to see some personal responsibility and forward momentum from your partner and they're just not willing to do it, you've got the information you need. Now it's over to you and your personal responsibility to make a choice about whether this is a relationship you want to stay in. Next, this lovely listener wanted to stay anonymous and they said, I have decided to separate from my husband and marry my true wild self. I'm in limbo. Any advice? Oh, my darling, I love this question and I'm so happy for you. To give the listeners some context to my answer, as it may feel like quite a personal answer to a brief but big question, the person who sent this in is a client of mine and we have known each other for a long time now. I also want to share that my answer here is based on the knowledge that this is not in any way a dangerous situation for our questioner to leave. And now for some famous further context. So you told me that your partner has, after six years of claiming mental health issues, that they have done little to remedy, leaving you with much of the burden of maintaining the marriage and the household. They have all of a sudden woken up and started to be kind and compassionate, which is naturally going to trigger a codependent response in you. Wondering if you are doing the right thing, if you're being too harsh, if perhaps you could salvage the marriage. But you've already told me that your mind is made up. It's now a case of making the physical moves to end the relationship and move on. Just a note for everyone listening to this, it's a common codependent misconception that somebody suddenly becoming conscious of how they've been fucking everything up when faced with the end of a relationship or an ultimatum is somehow romantic. Like when the going got tough and they really had to make a choice, they chose you. Let me just bust that myth for you right here and now. There is nothing romantic about someone who for months or years neglects you and your feelings, ignores your pleas and requests for more attention or more effort, and only decides to make a change when they stand to lose something. I'm not saying that it's not possible and can't happen that relationships get saved at the last minute right when they're on the brink, 
I'm sure there are instances out there of people managing to save a relationship from the jaws of death, but I'd bet it's not very common, not least because it's inauthentic, disingenuous and exasperating to have someone just decide to buck their ideas up at the last minute after you've slogged your way through a shitty relationship. That kind of behavior degrades trust and spends equity that isn't available. It takes a lot of work, a lot of making up to come back from something like that and a lot of openness and willingness to forgive from the other person, which can make recovery work and boundary setting even harder and more confusing than they need to be. So back to your question, my lovely. The most important thing you can do for yourself right now before you make the physical move is ensure that you are supported and well-resourced, that you have your trusted circle around you and you have the logistics required all lined up. Make sure that you have a soft place to land in this time of transition, both emotionally and in terms of where you will be living and with your finances. For example, when I left my marriage, I took a full-time job for a while instead of trying to carry on my business. People are perfectly capable of remaining self-employed while going through a big life change and they do it all the time. But personally, I wanted to be supported by a regular salary and have the space and time to process what I was going through without the worry of not being present for my clients that day or the fear of projecting onto them. I'm not saying this is what you have to do, just giving an example of how I took care of myself logistically during my separation and divorce. And I have to admit that it felt scary at times. My life felt very different to the one I was used to. It felt smaller and like less of an expression of me. But I now see that I did a really smart thing by putting myself in a cocoon I wrapped myself up and gave myself a safe space to feel and be with very little pressure to do anything but go through the motions. There were times when I wondered if I would ever re-emerge, when I thought, is this it? Is this me now for the rest of my life? But I could always see a little flicker of my old or perhaps my new or renewed self somewhere in my mind's eye. In the darkest, loneliest, most difficult times, I always held on to that and it became a time in my life when I began to develop a deep sense of self-trust. However this time looks for you logistically, my love, I know it will be the same for you. A time for healing and learning to trust, know and love yourself like never before. Crucially, spend as much time on your own as you need, but not as much as you want. Allow yourself to be supported by people who see the real you people who know you as more than this relationship, people who see your wholeness and are excited for you to emerge. Then when the time is right, and you may have moments of this through this first period of gentleness and hibernation, or it may feel like it comes all at once when you've recouped enough energy, celebrate, experience joy, practice rituals and ceremonies for yourself to mark endings, beginnings and milestones. Something I did for myself was get some meaningful tattoos. One of them is an anchor on my ring finger. My tattooist told me it's not the way you would usually have it. I had it so it's the right way up for me when I hold up my hand. The bottom of the anchor points down towards my knuckle. I had it that way because it's for me and no one else. And its significance is to remind me that if there ever is a ring on that finger again in the future, that I am my own anchor, first, last, and always. I also got some piercings and cut my hair as I stepped further into my sense of self-expression. Now, I know this might just be starting to sound like a midlife crisis, lol, 
But all of these things for me were important physical representations of how I felt inside of who I really was and who I had always wanted to be. I'd no longer felt held back by my codependency, by my need for external validation or by a relationship. Again, I'm not saying you need to go out and get tattooed, pierced and get your head shaved, though, of course, if you want to, welcome to the club. But when the time is right, when you have emerged from your cocoon, make sure you mark the occasion somehow in a way that is meaningful to you and keep doing that. Keep validating yourself, grounding yourself and growing your sense of worth and never stop. And now this from Emily. Post-narcissistic abuse, how do you trust people? I'm frequently afraid everyone is a narcissist. Okay, love, you're definitely not alone in this one. Those of us who have experienced narcissistic abuse know this feeling well. Anyone who has been abused or manipulated in a relationship will likely experience anything from what we might term trust and intimacy issues to diagnosable PTSD. If you feel that this fear is overwhelming, I would recommend seeking out a therapist who specializes in working with PTSD, who will be able to recommend a course of treatment specifically for this. EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is also recommended for people living with the effects of trauma and PTSD. So that might be something that you want to look into as well. Whether you feel this fear extends to the level where you need to get that kind of professional support or not, I can also offer you some tips and perspective shifts that will help you day to day alongside any other therapies you might choose to get. If you identify as codependent, getting into a solid, consistent program of recovery where you are actively learning how to build up your sense of self-worth and practicing validating yourself and your emotions, as well as learning the skill of direct communication, is the ultimate protection against narcissistic, manipulative, and abusive people. Here's the thing. People who have their own unresolved shit, who project it onto us and use us as shock absorbers for their problems, i.e. narcissistic, manipulative, and abusive people, do exist, and they're much more common than we want them to be. But they only stick around in people's lives who allow and accept them. I'm very careful about using the term attract when it comes to narcissists because it feels a bit victim blamey to me. Narcissistic and manipulative people are attracted to anyone who seems like they might be empathetic, open, kind and compassionate. And recovering does not take these qualities away from you. But what it does give you is the ability to be clear on what works for you and what doesn't. To spot and actually heed red flags and communicate and maintain boundaries. In the early stages of a connection with a narcissist, they will always throw out tests. They will push your boundaries or disrespect you in some way, or they love bomb you and see how willingly you accept the hyperspeed at which they are trying to push the relationship. When you have a good level of recovery, you no longer fall for this shit. You see through the manipulation. Your recovery practice and the tools you learn become your armor. When you have them and you're practiced enough at employing them, when you live recovery and boundaries and direct communication, you no longer have to fear whether people are narcissists or not because you trust yourself enough to know that they just don't stick to you anymore. Next up, we have this from Catherine who asked if I had any tips for recovering from self-sabotage. I asked our lovely listener for some more context on this question and she expanded to say, I've been saying for years now that I want to improve my diet eat more and feel healthier and stronger. 
I've really focused on it this year and still nothing's changed. I really struggle to keep promises I make to myself. I'm only learning now that this may be due to emotionally unavailable parents as a child and learning early on to neglect my own needs to suit them, more my mom, but I'm still not sure how anything actually changes. Okay, I understand the what and why of it, but I still have the same day-to-day routine. I'm still underweight and I still don't do anything to change that. Hey love, thanks for this question. So I think two things are going on here. There's a fundamental lack of self-worth and potentially a lack of support. It seems like you've identified what could be at the root of a lack of self-worth and it makes perfect sense to me that if you don't inherently value yourself and you aren't practiced in putting your needs first and making and honoring time for yourself, that it would be hard for you to keep up something like a change in diet. Something that might seem on the surface like it's simple. And yes, the action of creating a meal plan, shopping for the food and eating the food is relatively simple. But when the underlying lack of self-worth, your default response, tells you every time you're about to make those changes or take action that you shouldn't bother because you're not worthy of the time, effort or money, then you stay stuck. The actions are simple, but the deep emotions attached to them are not. Some practical ways you can start to build that self-worth are... Noticing, feeling, and writing down your emotions when they come up, really sitting with them, describing them, understanding them, and naming them instead of minimizing them or brushing them aside. Then practicing speaking your needs into existence, asking for help and support, asking for space and time, and starting to give yourself more of what you want in any and all ways, not necessarily related to this specific desire to gain weight and get stronger. When you practice doing this in other areas of your life, even in small, seemingly inconsequential ways, you will start to reset the psychological conditioning that tells you you aren't worthy of making changes and making an effort for yourself. The other piece of this is actively seeking help. If you had emotionally unavailable parents and your childhood and youth were geared towards you focusing on your mom's needs and desires being met, It's likely that feeling supported is alien to you and you might feel some resistance to allowing and accepting help into your life. If you want to gain weight and feel stronger, a good holistic coach who has experience with resistance training and nutrition could be a great place to start for you. Investing in someone who will invest in you, honoring yourself with the support you deserve, giving yourself the gift of accountability and motivation and not having to do all the emotional labor on your own. Allow someone else who sees clients like you all the time to shoulder some of this with you. And finally, be gentle with yourself. This is a steady process. It won't always be linear. Sometimes it will feel slow and like you're not making progress. Sometimes it will feel like two steps forward, one step back. That's okay. You're resetting decades of conditioning here. It's not going to be an overnight thing. But consistent, loving focus will change how you feel about yourself, which will in turn grease the wheels of the actions you want to take. And finally, this from Rachel. How can I create boundaries around my time in a new relationship? So we've had a few questions to this effect recently, and the answer I'm going to give is pretty quick and dirty because it's a relatively simple one. Recovering from codependency is clunky, especially in the beginning. It looks a lot like saying yes when you meant no, then having to go back and correct yourself. Having to consciously slow down, stop, think about what you're going to say and how best to say it directly and concisely. 
Sometimes even cutting yourself off mid-flow when you realize you've tripped into justifying and over-explaining. And another technique that we use in recovery is arbitrary time limits and scheduling because recovery loves routine and codependency loves chaos. So how you create boundaries around time in a new relationship is you create boundaries around your time. You decide what your priorities are outside of this relationship, your non-negotiable time. For most people, that includes things like work, time for exercise, movement or hobbies, time for life admin and maintenance, stuff like grocery shopping, cleaning, money management, and time you need to spend taking care of children or pets. Included in this category should also be some time for socializing and connecting with your micro community, your friends and family, and any other communities you might be a part of. You block this time out in your calendar, realistically. You see how much time you need to maintain your life in a healthy, balanced way. Then you see how much time you have left over and you divide that between how much time you want to spend with your person and how much of it you want and need to spend alone, free time, just for you to do anything or nothing. And voila, there's your equation. You let your person know, hey, I'm usually free on Wednesday evenings, Saturday nights and Sunday afternoons. Of course, if you have something special planned or they want to take you out somewhere on a different day than your usual free times and they give you notice, cool you can renegotiate and reschedule some things in a way that feels good to you. It's not like you have to live and die by this routine, but you should aim to live by it like 80 to 90% of the time, especially in early recovery and early on in a relationship. That kind of structure allows the relationship time to breathe and grow. It also allows you time to process your feelings and make sure you're clear on what's happening in the relationship. It's harder to skip over red flags when you're only seeing each other twice a week because enmeshment doesn't tend to happen that way. It also allows you to keep being yourself, keep having a life, maintain your sense of self and not lose yourself in your partner or your relationship. So yeah, it's going to feel clunky and not very romantic or spontaneous. But as codependents, the fantasy of romance and spontaneity has gotten us into trouble enough times already. And I'd like to remind you that my codependency recovery community, Wildly Worthy, is now open. For less than £50 a month, you can get access to weekly Q&A coaching calls with me, as well as my full online codependency recovery course, and a community of people who are all on this recovery journey with you, so that means a totally supportive, judgment-free zone. Wildly Worthy is open to all women and female socialized non-binary people. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anti-People Pleasing Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to, or follow the pod. It helps more people find us and join the movement to have healthier, more fulfilling relationships. This is a festive Freudian slip, but I've definitely written here tips for recovering from elf sabotage. <laughs> <laughs>